0: Be my vision. I love the way this uh, song ends. Still be my vision, O ruler of all. And this is our prayer this morning that God's spirit, God's presence, God's power and majesty would be fresh in our vision as a result of reading God's word and of hearing his word preached to us. Would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel, chapter 9? We are continuing in our series of sermons in the book of Daniel, a series that we have entitled, The Supremacy of God. For those of you who are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 779. For those of you who are visiting us this morning, it is our delight and pleasure to read longer section of the Bible in our services. So we encourage you to open your Bibles and follow along and hear God's word preached to us as, uh, and read to us as we will read chapter 9 in its entirety. Here is the word of the Lord this morning for our hearts, for our minds. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over Babylonian kingdom, uh, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned. And done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous. But this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem, and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes, and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving to your truth, giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O oh Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with your all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear open, hear, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act for your sake, O my God. Do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for His holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray... An answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Yet he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set an nation that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would make this truth clear to us, that God might show to us the, the importance of this passage for our daily lives as Christians. Let's go to the Lord, go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that you are a God who answers prayer. We thank you that you are a God who decrees the future before it happens. We praise you that you are a God who desires to let your people know the things that will come, so that we may have our full assurance and our full confidence in your gracious ways. We pray that by your Spirit will, you will guide us as we hear this word explained to us. I need your help, O oh God so that you may speak to my heart and to our hearts this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. Friends, for the past two Sundays, um, in some way we have been through some heavy terrain uh, in the book of Daniel, some heavy apocalyptic uh, visions. And as we uh, jump into chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 9 feels like a rest area where we can take a pause and deal with some easier passage. We see Daniel praying. We see Daniel reading Scripture. Actually, it's a beautiful picture of of Daniel's prayer life, how Daniel's prayer life was greatly dependent on reading and studying the Scriptures. Um, And and only as we deepen our understanding of God, as revealed in the Bible, will our praying become richer and more soundly based on who God is. The easiest way to understand this chapter, chapter 9, is to look for two major themes. Daniel's prayer, that's the first theme, and the second theme is God's answer to Daniel's prayer. That's it. Daniel's prayer, and his prayer will be specifically for God to bring about the end of the exile. That's a prayer Daniel prays to God. And then the answer God gives is how God will bring about the end of the exile. This is it. Let's look at each of these topics, each of these themes in this chapter, and see how we are encouraged as Christians today in the 21st century, uh, how we are encouraged to follow our God and to continue to pray for God's kingdom to be fully brought to earth as it is happening already in heaven. Chapter 9 begins with a timestamp, a prayer for the end of the exile. When does this prayer happen? When does Daniel pray this prayer? In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes. This means, dear friends, that if we were to, to look back at the time when Daniel was taken into exile, and if we look at the historical uh, accounts of when Xerxes came to power, there are about 66 years after the time Daniel was taken into Babylon. And Daniel reads scripture and reads a prophet. Here's the man of visions. He's still reading his Bible to get from the Bible a sense of when God will bring about the end of the exile. And he reads Jeremiah's prophecy and he reads that God decreed 70 years. It's been 66. You do the math. How much time is left before the exile is over? Four more years exciting you can't wait for it let's start to celebrate what does daniel do he starts to pray and he starts to pray for that which god has already decreed how interesting four more years until god will bring about what he has decreed and what does daniel do he prays look Look in, in, in verse 3. He tells us of, of his intense prayer. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Now this is an unusual way of praying, uh, at least to us uh, modern people in the 21st century, praying with sackcloth and ashes. In the Old Testament, it was a picture of being very deliberate, very intentional to humble yourself before God in repentance. That, this is what Daniel does. Four more years before the exile is over. And what does Daniel do? Instead of rejoicing, praising God, starting to plan a huge, a massive celebration in all of, of Israel and, and, and Babylon for the Israelites, what he does, he's turn, he turns to the Lord in prayer. And it's a prayer of confessing sin. It's a prayer of mourning Now, why would you pray if God already promised what he would do? Do you ever wonder that question? Why do you pray if God already promised it? Friends, because God's promises are supposed to drive us to prayer. God's promises are not supposed to give us a time off so we can take it easy in our prayer times. I love how one, um, one, one commentator expressed this imagery. It's as if God's promises have Velcro on them. And our prayers are meant to get stuck there. The more we see God's promises, the more we should, that should drive us to prayer. Friends, if, God's, if you take God's promises as automatic on your part, and uh, you just assume things will happen apart from seeking God in prayer, we might have a misguided view of God's promises and how we're supposed to relate to them. For Daniel, God's promises encourage him pray. Now, there's something interesting about this prayer. It's written out. Most prayers of the Bible are not written out. Most times, and Daniel could have very easily done the same here, he could have said, I pray to the Lord, and then the Lord had answered. We know in chapter 6, when Daniel is is ordered not to pray, he goes on praying. We don't know what Daniel prayed on that time. But here in chapter 9, what's amazing about this prayer is that we get a word for word content of what Daniel prayed for. Why would Daniel's prayer be written out? I think there's something very valuable for Israel's sake to learn from Daniel's prayer. I think there's something very valuable for our sake today to learn from Daniel's prayer as he's facing the end of the exile. Why would Daniel pray this way? Remember Solomon's prayer as Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8? We referred to that prayer earlier in our series in Daniel Here's what King Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple. I want to read to you a few verses and listen to this as a backdrop of what Daniel is doing in chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 8, King Solomon said, When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to his own land, far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive— and repent and plead with you in the land of the conquerors and say, we have sinned, we have acted wrong, we have acted wickedly, and if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul, hear from heaven, listen to their prayers. There are four more years before the exile is about to be finished. But so far in the book of Daniel, we have seen no one actually repent over Israel's sin. The exile time is about to run out, and the people of Israel have not yet repented. You'll say, where do you get that from? From the text? Would you look with me to verses 13 and 14 and listen to how Daniel prays in these two verses? Very carefully, there's a huge emphasis in these two verses. Look at what Daniel says, just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. Now you would think that after 66 years of exile, Israel would have repented by now. But did you notice the emphasis that even after the disaster Of the exile, the people of Israel have not sought the favor of the Lord and have not paid attention to his truth. Notice this emphasis again in verse 14. Daniel says, The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. The exile has already happened. They're about to be at the end of it. And Daniel says, Yet we have not obeyed him. This is why Daniel's prayer is so important. I love what uh, one commentator says, What good will it do to have a people back in the land with still no sense of their sin and no exercise in repentance? Or what good will it do to have people back in their land yet have never been crushed in spirit over their idolatry? So Daniel's prayer, by the fact that's given to us word for word, in such a great detail, might be an indication that Daniel's real and great concern now seems to be that there's little such sadness and mourning among Israel even after 66 years of exile. They have gone through all this disaster and are without home, without a temple, without freedom, and sadly, without repentance, still. That's why the bulk of Daniel's prayer is filled with lament and repentance. Friends, I counted through the prayer, 14 times Daniel gives clear, explicit expressions of acknowledging his sin and the sin of Israel and asking God to forgive him. 14 phrases that explicitly state Israel's guilt and tells why God has forsaken Israel. Look with me just at two verses. I'm, going to give you not, I'm not going to give you all the 14 examples, but just a few verses. Look at verse 5 and 6. There are four such expressions packed in the, in the, in the first verses of this prayer. 5 and 6, we have sinned and done wrong. Second expression, we have been wicked and have rebelled. Third expression, we have turned away from your commands and laws. In verse 6, the fourth expression, we have not listened to your servants. Let me give you a few other examples. In verse 10, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Here's another example, verse 16. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Friends, these are just some of the 14 references, 14 times talking about different ways in which Israel rejected her God. And then notice how many petitions. There's only four in verse 19. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. How amazing that what fills Daniel's prayer on this day, just four years away from the end of the exile, what fills Daniel's prayer is is not the honey-do list that we, like our prayers, we typically bring to God. This prayer for the end of the exile doesn't focus on the petitions, like oftentimes we are just tempted to just go into God's presence in prayer and just bring all our requests Daniel's prayer is focused first and foremost on praying for his own sins and on behalf of the sins of Israel. And notice that when Daniel refers to the exile and to the punishment God brought against his people, Daniel gives no hint, not the slightest hint of bitterness against God. If anything, Daniel praises God for his love and faithfulness and for his righteousness, and he says, God, you are so right to bring this against us. You are faithful in doing what you have said in your laws against your people when we chose to disobey you. Yet Daniel attributes all these punishments and consequences to their own disobedience. In Daniel's prayer, we see several key signs of of true repentance. Repentance. One of them is accepting the consequences over one's own sin, plain and simple. A second characteristic is being mournful, not so much over the consequences, but being mournful over the cause of sinning against the Lord and bringing shame against his name. And a third characteristic of Daniel's prayer of repentance here is that he's highlighting the justice and love of God even in the midst of his righteous judgment. Friend, can you pray like that? Do you pray like that? You know, we can't pray this way without having the conviction of sin drilled deep down in our hearts. You just can't pray like this, like Daniel prayed, without conviction of sin being drilled down deep your heart. Superficial conviction of sin confesses sin superficially. Superficial conviction of sin confesses sin quickly. Superficial conviction of sin confesses sin generally. What is most dangerous about a superficial conviction of sin is that it will also think superficially of God's mercies and grace and will approach God more with a sense of entitlement than with a sense of poverty of spirit. What makes this prayer even more powerful is when we realize and remember the very obvious. Who is this prayer of confession prayed by. Who is it prayed by? Daniel! Now, we've been already in eight chapters in this book. Can you think of one negative thing brought against Daniel in this book? Friends, I don't know if you realize, but there are very, very, very few characters in the Bible of whom nothing wrong is actually revealed. Joseph is one of them. Daniel is the other. Even David and Moses, we see ways, in, the Bible highlights ways in which they have sinned against the Lord. What makes this prayer of confession so powerful is that the one who confesses it is one of the very, very few people in the Bible of whom nothing wrong is written. And that's what's amazing about this prayer. And Daniel clearly prays this prayer about his own sin. Look at verse 20. He prayed not only for Israel's sin, but his own sin also. This is a man who lives his life above reproach, and we get this prayer of confession from such a man. You know what this tells us about us, about us Christians and our prayer lives? One of the primary marks of a Christian is that he or she continually mourns over his sin or her sins, even when he's able to live life above reproach. I love what one of the Dutch theologians said um, what distinguishes us from the world is not that we're less wicked, but that by the grace of God, we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is, and that we confess our sins. And He goes on to say, the church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer a church. Christian Do you like confessing your sin? No. I'll tell you the answer to that question about me. I don't like confessing my sin. It's painful. I don't like to look at my own failures. It's more fun to look at the failures of others. But if we don't routinely consider our sinfulness, not just in general, but in specifics... We should really wonder to what extent the Holy Spirit is truly at work in our hearts. Uh, you may ask this morning, what does confession of sin and repentance of heart, what do these have to do with my daily Christian life? Everything. See, where do I get that from? Let me give you just one of the many passages in Scripture, Ezekiel 36: "God gives a promise to the prophet Ezekiel that he will restore Israel." that God will give them, a new, give them a new heart, that God will cleanse them from all their idolatries, that God will um, sprinkle clean water on them, that God will put a new spirit in them. And in Ezekiel 36, is a promise that God will give His spirit to His people so they will obey God from, the, from their hearts. And then verse 31 says, a beautiful verse, Then, after all these promises, then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. How amazing. Here's an unmistakable unmistakable mark of a truly changed heart, of a life in which the Spirit of God is present. It's a presence of mourning for our sins and repenting over them. A new spirit will produce a new sadness, that mourns and agonizes over sin, bringing about what the Puritans would call the perpetual brokenheartedness. Friends, this confession of sin that Daniel exemplifies for us is not only for our own sin, but also on behalf of the people of God. People are oftentimes troubled by the state of the church. Look at how bad it is, how, how bad of a shape it is. And typically people um, quickly jump on criticizing it or distancing themselves from the the bad state of the church. What about if we actually went to the Lord in prayer and actually confessed on behalf of the church for all the, the failures of the church? What if instead of developing a critical spirit against the people of God and against the church of God, we would actually turn to the Lord, confessing not only for our sins, but for the sins and the, and the failures of the people of God in general. That's why, dear friends, one of the things we, we care about here at Park Hills when we gather to worship regularly is to make sure that we have a spotlight in our service when we confess sin. It might be a special prayer of confessing sins, or in my pastoral prayer, I may just give enough time and focus on confessing our sins before the Lord regularly. It's a regular reminder of what the Christian life is about. So that, dear friends, we may remember that the end of the exile is brought by God when his people repent and feel the the weight of their sin. And they come to the Lord with clean hearts, wanting to experience God's fresh spirit in fresh ways. That's Daniel's prayer for the end of the exile. It's really a prayer, a confession of sin, so that the exile may actually come to an end. But let's look at God's answer. I know I spoke so much of uh, in the sermon so far already on, on the confession of sin. That's because that's the, the major emphasis of Daniel's prayer. But look at the way the, uh, God answers this prayer. Here's the amazing part. Even though many people, um, well, at least some, some people don't like so much emphasis on confession of sin, on, on focusing on repentance, on acknowledging our guilt. What's amazing about this prayer is that this is, one of the few p- prayers that gets the quickest response recorded in the Bible. So I think there's hope and there's great potential in not, fo- in not worrying about focusing too much on repentance and acknowledging our sin. This is amazingly the quickest prayer answered in the Bible. Uh, look at verse 23. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. How amazing. Wouldn't you like all your prayers to be answered this way on this kind of timeline? We would love to do that. Perhaps we should do more prayers of confession of sin. Not that God has to do it this way. God is sovereign to do it in the way he chooses. But look at how God answers this um, prayer that Daniel prayed. Daniel prays for the end of the exile to happen. What does God answer? A vision of 70 weeks. An apocalyptic vision. Now, friends... I don't know about you, but I'll tell you, we could stay at least two hours just to talk about details and various interpretations of how the 70 weeks have been interpreted or can be interpreted uh, in the Bible. And I know some of you are already nodding your head and saying, don't do that, Samuel. I won't. I won't. But here's the point about the 70 weeks. It's God's timeline from the minute the decree to build a temple will be given or to, to, to restore Israel, will be given to the end of human history. And what's amazing about these 70 weeks is that God splits them up in, in three categories, or three, three subsets. The first seven weeks, then 62 seven weeks, and then a final week. I'm going to run quickly through some of the um, events that God gives on this timeline. What's most important it seems that there in, the in the last of the 70 weeks, the, the, seventh, the, the 70th week, most of the vision happens or the focus falls on what happens in the 70th week. Now, some, fe- some folks would think that the 70th week is still in the future from this point on for us. I actually think the text gives impressions that that week has already started. And you say, when and how? Amazing, there's an anointed one twice repeated. They're not the same person, even though in our NIV um, Bibles, and perhaps in yours as well, uh, the first anointed one that will come is also capitalized. But the second anointed one will be cut off. Um, cut off and have nothing. This is an interesting thing about, about what will happen in the 70th week. Who is this, the one cut off? Well, the language of being cut off from the land of the living is an echo of Isaiah 63. The one who's going to be cut off from the land of the living and have nothing is an echo of Jesus, of His crucifixion. The way He died on the cross, even over His clothes, they cast lots. And then what's amazing is that we are also told that one will also make a covenant in the 70th week with the people, and in the middle of the week, the sacrifices will cease. Some think this might refer to uh, the same person who actually, the ruler who came to destroy the sanctuary. Um, In verse 27, at the beginning, um, we're given a picture of the one who made a covenant for one seventh, for one week. And then at the end of verse 27, we see someone who causes the abomination uh, and, and the causes the desolation. And the impression we get is that these two people are actually the same one, but they're not. The one who co- makes a covenant for one week and then will make will put an end to the middle uh, in the middle of the week to the sacrifices. It's really a picture of what happened at the cross remember right before Jesus was crucified, what did he do? He instituted the Lord's Supper as a sign of the new covenant. And remember when Jesus died on the cross, when he gave his last breath, what happened to the temple, the, the curtain in the Holy of the Holies? It split in half as a symbol that now our access to the presence of God is no longer needed through sacrifices through the shedding of blood. Why? Because the one and only and ultimate sacrifice has been shed on our behalf so that we might have access into the presence of God. So that, friends, throughout the Old Testament, God had declared that blood had to be shed for man's sin. In order for man to come into the presence of God, the blood of animals had to be um, shed, and yet they were never able to remove the guilt of sin nor to cleanse the conscience of men. These sacrifices were just pointers to the one and only true Lamb of God. But when He was cut off from the land of the living, He put an end to human sacrifice. So that now, our access to God is no longer through sacrifices, but through the one and only sacrifice. And God had atoned for the sin of His people just like the priest would atone for the sin of Israel year after year with one major, a few major differences. Now, Jesus as a high priest walked into the heavenly sanctuary not with the blood of an animal but with his own blood to cover for the sins of God's people. Friends, this is what happens in the 70th week. This is what God will do. This is how God will atone for Israel's sin and for the sin of God's people. Now, various people have various ways of interpreting the 70 weeks. We can talk about that further if you'd like. But here's the biggest point about the 70 weeks. It's not so much the chronology of what God will do um, in history in each of those three subsets of of weeks. It's more about the purpose that God has behind the 70, 70 weeks. And I want to camp out on this as, as the last focus of our of our time this morning. Look at verse 24: the focus that God has for the 70 weeks. Verse 24: "...seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression and to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Six purposes God has behind the seventy weeks. Six purposes. Daniel prayed for the end of the exile, that God would listen, would forgive, would hear, and would act. And God's answer is six purposes. Finish the transgression. Put an end to sin. Atone for iniquity. Bring in everlasting righteousness. Seal the vision and the prophecy. And anoint a most holy one. For Daniel, all he thought of just was just the return to the land. But God's purposes was way greater. God envisioned the total eradication of evil and the establishment of his righteous and eternal kingdom. Now, the first three goals respond indeed to Daniel's prayer, even though in a very stretched-out way. God will finish the transgression, meaning that God will finish sin in all its forms. God will put an end to sin, meaning that God will bring a time when sin will no longer be able to pollute the world. God will atone for the iniquity, meaning that God will cover the iniquity the way the priest would cover the sins of Israel by sprinkling blood on the atonement cover in the Holy of Holies. And Jesus did that for us. And yet there are goals here that have not yet fully been um, lived out yet. We still live in a world of sin. We still live in a world of rebellion. We still live in a time when righteousness has not yet fully been manifested. Oh, friends, the great hope we have as Christians is that God will put an end to sin, even though we still live in a sinful world. The great hope we have as Christians is that God will bring a time when His kingdom of righteousness will be in full display, even though we have not yet seen it in its fullness. But here's why the gospel is such a big deal to us as Christians. Paul in Romans 1.17 tells us that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is is revealed. This righteousness that God promised to bring about at the end of time is already revealed to us in the gospel. The gospel is news, dear friends, that the death of Christ, God's righteousness, in the death of Christ, God's righteousness has been revealed in our own broken world. And the fact that God, that mankind has fallen away from perfection, from the perfection which God created us, that fact triggers the judgment of God. As the exile is a picture of already and yet just as daniel claimed that god was righteous to bring about that exile upon him we can claim that god was so righteous to bring the exile of adam and eve from the garden so that not only us but the entire creation still lives in separation from god exiled from the presence of god and in the same way as daniel we are called to pray and repent and acknowledge our wickedness uh, before God and turn to Him with repentant hearts and ask God to forgive and to listen. And we look and, and trust in the news that God has already atoned for the sins of His people, for the sins of those who turn to Him in faith and repentance, because Christ has been sacrificed for our sins. Friends, in the Gospel, we have this hope that God has already begun the work of atoning he has already done it, even though that work still awaits its final consummation. Oh friend, I don't know about you this morning, but do you know if your sins have been atoned for? Do you know if your, your wickedness has been confessed before God, has been covered by God? Blessed is the man whom God does not keep account of his sins. I wonder if that is you this morning. If it's not, I would love to talk to you more at the end of the service about the hope the gospel gives us that in Christ, the last days, the last of the 70 weeks have already started. We live between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And for us Christians today, we are still looking forward to the sixth goal that God has given to Daniel, namely to anoint a holy one, to anoint Christ as sovereign, to anoint Christ as reign. As as reigning over his creation and over our lives, that's why, dear friends, the the Bible, the book that Christians worship and or based on which Christians worship, the Bible ends with a beautiful words of of a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Why? Because all the promises that God has given Daniel in the Old Testament will be fully experienced when Jesus will return. Oh, friends, I pray that you will take seriously this prayer that Daniel gives to us. It's a beautiful model of how we, still in exile, still awaiting for God to bring about the end of the exile, how we can pray to God for our own sins, even though we might live a life that is above reproach, we continue to live a life of, of mourning of our sins and ask that God will bring the time when He will bring His kingdom in its full righteousness on earth. I pray that this would be a part of what we do as the people of God here at Parkland's Baptist Church. I pray that we would do that in a, you know, in a real way, in a deliberate way. and Not be ashamed or feel negative of times when we have to repent and when we have to acknowledge our sins before God. Only he who acknowledges his sins before God is overwhelmed by the great mercy of God. I pray that that would be the experience of of our church every time we gather in this place. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious God, we praise you that in Christ, you have brought about the beginning of the end. We thank you that in Christ, we see the hope of all your promises already taking place among us, and through us, and around us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to draw your people to you. We pray that you would continue to draw your people to live a life of of ongoing brokenheartedness, of ongoing mourning over sin, and at the same time rejoicing and being comforted by the great mercies of your grace. Oh, God, we pray that you would allow us as a gathering, as a congregation, to be a display of what it means for the, for the anointed one to reign over his people. May your people here at Hills Baptist Church be the community over which the reign of Christ is a display, a foretaste of the glories to come when Christ will bring his kingdom fully upon the earth. O oh Lord, until that day comes, we pray that you would keep us away from evil. We pray that you would keep us away from temptation. We pray pray that you would bring us into your presence and give us the joy of repentance, the joy of living free from exile. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand up uh, with us once again as we end our time in worship of the Lord.